this episode of The Interface, I speak with Matt Burke, Global Director of Sales for Amphenol RF out of Danbury, Connecticut. Matt has been with Amphenol for 20 years. We talk about his promotion to his current role, where, in addition to the sales team, he manages program management, applications engineering, customer service, and a more proactive online presence to get closer to their customers. We talk about growing up as a huge sports fan just outside of the New York area, going to UMass Lowell for civil engineering, before finding his niche as a sales engineer for a materials company. We talk about his approach to sales, figuring out the best plan to succeed, and treating sales like it's a sports competition. We talk about the hobby that takes up most of his time, which is dirt track racing, and we discuss his Desert Island album, book, and movie. This is The Interface. So Matt, first of all, thank you for joining us on the interface podcast i appreciate you doing this today um i know i caught you on a wednesday you already said you're feeling out the week we're seeing how this is going to turn out is that fair do you do you feel positive that we're going to end on a good note this week i think it's fair i think we're set up we have a good start here so now we just have to close it out and we'll be all right so tell me and tell the listeners if you could what your job is for Amphenol rf sure um i was recently promoted to the global director of sales So I have global responsibility for the sales teams. Obviously for us, that's North America, Asia, and Europe in terms of the specific markets. Um, The thing that's a little different than maybe some of the traditional global director of sales roles is I also have responsibility for program management, applications engineering, and customer service here in North America. And in Europe, we're in the process of, of building a very similar structure. So we have a program manager there, an inside sales team there, and an applications engineering engineer there. So that's globally what my responsibility is. So it's really the front end aspect of the business. Well, first, congratulations uh, on the promotion. Yes. Second, um, how much time have you had to work up to this and how familiar are you with, you know, all the different responsibilities? Because like you said, you touched on not just the direct sales to your customers, but you have applications engineers, uh, program management, customer service. So it's a lot of different business functions and job disciplines. Uh, how do you attack managing that? It's a little bit different uh, for each area. Fortunately, and I'm sure we'll get in my background a little bit, but I came through the program management team into sales and then became the national program manager and then ultimately into running sales in North America and then from there. So I, I've had some time to sort of evolve in, in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that and part of being the regional teams that we have, we break it down regionally in North America. I work directly with customer service. I work directly with the program manager or I was a program manager and then I became a regional sales guy. I worked with that team. So I really understood how everything kind of worked together. Um, and in terms of the front end applications engineering team, that's something that myself and, and Greg Strayton and Rahul Rajan have developed as a result of the, obviously the change in the market landscape here recently with COVID and, and our go-to-market strategy changed in terms of trying to adapt to the current structure we introduced that role. So that role I'm familiar with because I helped design it. So when you bring that all together, I really know what the deliverables are from each area. So I really managed to the deliverable in each section. Um, And I think one of the key points is though the strategy and the end goal is the same across the board. So the entire front end is pulling in the same direction. You talked about how the business had to change because of COVID. So what specifically Mm -hmm. were some of the major changes that you guys uh, realize you needed to implement in order to keep succeeding as a business? 
Well, there was a couple of things. First of all, on the front end, we had to adapt to this new um, kind of hybrid model. Originally, it was a work from home model that has evolved into this hybrid model. We developed this initiative that we called PACE, which was preserve, adapt, create, execute. And ultimately was that, you know, keep the customers that we have right now. Let's adjust to what, how everybody else is doing business, what they're comfortable with. Let's make sure our model matches that. Let's create new opportunities and execute on them and, and then bring them in. And then secondarily, as time has gone on and this hybrid model has really evolved, we've realized that the front end of the business has changed a little bit. In the past, you had regional salespeople or field salespeople. In our case, we had manufacturers, sales reps out there knocking on doors, trying to prospect. And that's still there to some level, but I really think that model is shifting over into more of a maintenance side of the business. Right. This digital touch is becoming a bigger thing. Yeah. So we introduced an inside sales team to get it from the digital touch, whether that be a web lead or a POS record or an iGIST download or something like that, to get it from there to a conversation to ultimately throwing it over the fence to the regional teams to do the value sales. So the two biggest changes were the adjustment on the front end, which is the inside sales and AE I described, right. and just the whole mindset of pace. Yeah, so the the online component has certainly become much more prevalent, I think, in a lot of different uh, Amphenol sales organizations that I've talked to over the last couple of years. Um, And it's not that we, it's not that anyone necessarily discounted that part of the business before, but once COVID hit and people were working from home and and that was, you had no choice but to do that. Um, You had to completely shift your, your sales touch model. Like how do you actually engage with the customers? And I think while some of the lessons learned were sometimes difficult, now I think you're starting to see where those lessons that were learned are being implemented in these new strategies like you're talking about, like PACE and and uh, and others. So yeah, I'm happy yeah. to see that. And and have you seen some success of you as you've evolved that model forward now into you know 22 and hopefully hopefully the end of this and and we can get a little bit more back to normal. Yeah. For sure. And I think ultimately, you know, it really forced us to get better for, you know, lack of a better term, because at the end of the day, we always had these leads that were there. And in my opinion, we frankly, they were underutilized. Yeah. And it really forced us to look at those leads that were right there in front of us. So here at Amphenol RF, Mike Comer runs that side of our business for us, Uh the Marcom and the biz dev side. And he has uh, Lindsay Sperling, who works for him, who does a lot of the, the digital aspect of things. And it generates so much activity and so much interest connecting that and bridging that back over with this inside sales side of things really was a very commonsensical approach that we hadn't done. Yeah. So I think it really forced us to get better and just smarter about how we were doing things. So you're at Amphenol RF and I think it, it may be fairly obvious as far as what you guys actually produce and the technologies <laughs> you have. However, I'll give you the chance as the global sales director to give your elevator pitch on what Amphenol RF is all about from a product standpoint, a technology standpoint, and why you would try to convince a customer to work with you as a partner. Sure. I mean, in terms of the product, it's pretty straightforward, right? We, we make single pin coaxial connectors. We make those connectors. We put them on cable assemblies. We always want to sell the cable assembly if we can because it has an, a higher ASP, if you will, and it just makes us stickier at the customer. We're bringing more value to, to them and to their products. Um, the thing that really differentiates MFLRF from our competition is that we have the broadest RF offering in the world. Yeah. So the number of different versions and interfaces of radio frequency connectors, nobody in the world has more than we do. We're unmatched. And the beauty of that is rather than go in and try and sell a solution to a customer, 
We go in, we understand what the customer is trying, trying to do, and then we apply the correct solution to them. And it really differentiates us from us. A lot of people will talk about value sell and bringing value to the customer and all these buzzwords. But in the end of the day, that's what we do. And I really view Amphenol in general, but Amphenol RF specifically, as an engineering company. And our job is to come in and solve your engineering problem uh-huh. on the RF side of things. And that broad offering of product and the capability of designing something brand new if we need to is really what differentiates us from the other side and from our competitors. When you think of new products right now or things you're you're most excited to talk about, some of the new products and technologies from Amphenol RF, what are some of those that you can share with us? Sure. I think overall, in terms of just a high-level conversation, it's for us the next generation of ruggedized industrial-type connectors. Okay. As RF is being adopted in these non-traditional markets, and we see it everywhere, right? This, I think Adam Nor refers to it as the enabling the electronics revolution. And yes. this electronics revolution has this general connectivity. And that connectivity, when there's going to be communication over a long distance utilizes RF technology by and large. And you're seeing RF incorporated into all kinds of different things, street lights, traffic lights, your oven, your coffee maker, into places that it's never been before. So there's a lot of existing technologies that we're taking and then ruggedizing. And then the other aspect is obviously the explosion in the automotive market. So the number of RF connectors in the automotive side of things has really expanded. And the beauty of that is we've developed these products such as Mini Fakra that are for the automotive market and they meet U.S. car standards and they have all these features and they're, they're tooled so they're generally pretty cost effective. We've been able to adapt that and then bring it over into the non-traditional market. So that's one of our largest sellers in the industrial space. So again, leveraging that large portfolio in these multiple markets we deal in has really been, been the fun part. And it's really taking what we have now and customizing it for the end use. Yeah, and you also, you alluded to this a little bit earlier as well, being part of Amphenol in general, Amphenol Corporation, and you guys mm-hmm. part of the RFOB group led by Bill Callahan. I mean, how yep. much does that help you? And you've been with RF for quite some time now, but how much does being part of that group where you really get to expand the product and technology portfolio uh, help you and your team when you're working with customers? Yeah, to be honest with you, I, you know, I really like this new structure. Um, It it gives us a lot of more camaraderie or alignment with our sister divisions. You know, you mentioned Bill, we we had worked with Bill um, when he was at running TMS and we worked with some stuff where we had some synergy there, obviously them making the cable, us making the connectors. Yeah. Um, In addition to that, having some more direct correlation with some of the other people in the overall group, both RFOB and the higher level groups has really helped us. I know for us, we've got a concerted efforts to try to align ourselves with industrial, with the old AICC or ACS group that is now. Yeah. And because a lot of those boards where you're putting those connectors on, there's going to be RF there too. And we, we've really been working directly with our colleagues and counterparts on that front to try to utilize the overall power of Amphenol. If one person has their way in, we're not asking them to sell the product, but we're doing individual introductions for one another. So I think that's been a step in the real right direction for us to leverage the Amphenol name a lot better than we've done in the past. I've seen it for years anyhow, but I think this new uh, division structure that you and I just talked about is really going to help foster that collaboration and that growth even quicker than than before. So it's it's nice yeah. to see. So And you have a good Bill's. Bill's all right, I guess. <laughs> I, I like Bill. I've known Bill for a while. So, so, so have I. I'm because we're on a podcast, yeah. but I like him. Yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. I like Bill, too. He's been a good guest on this podcast as well. 
So let's go backwards then. I'm glad to get the update on where you're at right now and and on the new job, and and I can see how that's going to progress very well. You said you grew up in New York, in uh, in Upper Westchester. So tell me a little bit about young Matt Burke growing up there. Well, I was was completely sports crazy. Uh, We talked a little bit about I grew up a huge Islander fan. I was a big Mets fan. Oddly, I was a Bears fan. Um, and I grew up just totally focused on sports. So depending on which season it was, that's what I was focused on. Yeah. I grew up in a town, it's called Mayapak, but it was actually officially called Lake Mayapak. We had a large lake in the middle of the town. And so wintertime was all about hockey and, and skating and doing all that stuff. And, and then in the summertime, we were fortunate to be able to have, go to the lake and swim and do all those things. So it really was a great place to, to grow up. The other beauty of it was I was close enough to New York City that I got to go to games and got yeah. to go to shows and do all that stuff. But I was far enough away that I pretty much grew up in the country. So it yeah. was it was kind of the best of both worlds in terms of that. So as a kid, looking back, you don't realize it then. But now I realize it was it was a pretty good place to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, I And I could totally see that where you're a, a short drive away from all the excitement from one of the you know great cities in the world and, and everything that comes with that. But at the same time. Uh, and I know the feeling. It is nice to be able to go home and kind of go, ah, okay, and, and just kind of <laughs> yes. chill and relax and not feel the weight of all everything else that's going on around you. So, well, especially New York City in the 1980s, there there was some weight there. Ah, uh, yes, I do remember the when I would go in as a young kid. Uh, yeah. it was a lot different than what it's like today. That's I guess Very we'll true. just leave it Very at that. True. Uh, <laughs> no less interesting, that's for sure. In fact, maybe even more no, interesting back then. I would agree, but, especially for a young boy. That's true. Yes, uh, agreed. So, where did you go to college? I went to college at UMass Lowell. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I ended up there. I went to Wentworth Institute of Technology for a year, and then I transferred to UMass Lowell. Believe it or not, I actually have a civil engineering background. Oh, um, okay. And I ended up at ULL. Interestingly, I, I worked at a hockey shop there, sharpening skates and all that stuff <laughs> while I was in school to get my, you know, have some spending money. So that sports thing never really left, but I, I certainly wasn't good enough to play on that level. So that was my background there. And, and then I ultimately ended up coming back down to the area I grew up in. And I, I started working for a materials company right out of school. So civil engineering, how did that, how did that come about? What, where was that interest from? Um, my dad was a road and bridge inspector growing up. Oh, and okay. so the civil engineering side just kind of made sense because I was around that. He was the highway superintendent in my town for a number of years. So that sort of thing was what I thought I wanted to do. And then certainly when I realized that I'd have to be outside in the elements or at the time behind a drafting desk, yeah. a little older so the CAD wasn't what it is today, um, I realized maybe that's not what I want to do. I prefer yeah. to stand and talk. So. I ultimately ended up in a sales engineer role, uh, like I said, for a materials company. And we sold high purity metals and ceramics. So literally the periodic table of elements yeah. was our, our catalog. <laughs> um, and then as time went on, um, I started focusing on the hard disk drive market at the time, yeah. which now seems a little antiquated, but at the time it was a big deal. And it was right at that juncture where um, longitudinal media was switching over to perpendicular. So there's a lot of changes in materials and things like that. So I've spent a lot of times looking at phase diagrams and talking to people. And I was fortunate and I, I really was able to get out there in front of the customers, map out who was going to be attack that market. And we had this large support of the, the parent company, but we operated as a small unit. So they took some 25, 26 year old kid, gave me responsibility. And I was fortunate. We grew that market from 7 million to 56 million in four years. So that was a, my first foray into planning the sales attack and then going and implementing it. What did you quickly learn when you had to do that, right? Because that's it takes a special skill, right? 
you can learn some of that, but you also kind of have to be born with that natural talent, I think, to be uh, a salesperson like that. So w- what was it about that 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 you enjoyed? Oh, I think the big thing is it, it actually stems back to talking about growing up as a sports guy. Yeah. It had a scoreboard. I, oh, there was no yeah. question. It, was, it wasn't really subjective whether I was doing a good job or not. I could look at the numbers and that would tell me. Um, yeah. In terms of how to attack it, it, it just simply was I realized in such a big thing, you really had to put together a succinct plan and then go step by step to get there. And the other thing which was really important to me, and, and I, I'm not going to call it a sheltered life, but growing up, I certainly my family didn't travel a ton and we didn't go internationally. But I very quickly learned the, the different areas and the, the different geographies and how you would approach things differently and each mm. area not created the same. So I had similar but different strategies for each of the places. And I think customizing each of those was important. And the other thing I focused on, uh, because there was a lot of development, I went to the think tanks where the development was happening from longitudinal perpendicular. Mm-hmm. I worked with those guys, provided them materials. So when that shifted into production, I was already the material of record. And when the primary uh, hard drive maker started building product, my name was on those white papers they were basing their technology on. Oh, very smart. I like that. So it worked. It worked. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I don't know if I was lucky or good, but it worked either way. So I'll take it. So how did you uh, ultimately get with Amphenol? Did they find you? Did you find them? Amphenol actually found me. So I worked with that materials company for a number of years. And then I actually took a real old school sales job in New York City. I was selling uh, software in Manhattan. Yeah. Um, and I, I was working there and things were going well. And then 2000 hit and there was a, a major downturn. And I just randomly got a call from the recruiter here at RF and said, hey, you know, we see your background and materials, but product management, you know, we're looking for a program manager. We, we'd be interested. Would you be interested? And I looked around and said, well, the economy is starting to come to a halt. Most of my direct customers are Wall Street and South. It might be a good time to make the shift back into <laughs> brick and mortar type of application and, and go from there. So yeah. in light of, the, of those uh, financial challenges, I made that shift and ended up here. And again, I don't know if it was good fortune or good planning, but I ended up in the right place at the right time, I think. Did you know who Amphenol was or Amphenol RF at that time, or was it completely foreign to you? Completely foreign to yeah. me. When I walked in the front door, obviously I had done the rudimentary online searches and, and yeah. all that stuff. But, um, you know, everything I could see about Amphenol was was very positive, and certainly we were already on the the uptick in terms of growing the business and and moving forward. And I just thought it made a lot of sense. And I don't know if I should admit it on the Amphenol podcast, but I thought worst case scenario, it's a good stopover to weather this storm, and we'll see how it goes. And uh, here I am, 14 years later. Yeah, that's totally fair, and uh, uh, I could totally understand that. How long did it take you to understand the technology and feel comfortable going out and selling it? Well, I went on my first sales trip two weeks after I started. So being comfortable going in front of the customer was never a challenge, Um, but really comfortable in the product. It probably took around six to 12 months to feel comfortable and probably 12 to 18 to feel like I could walk in front of anybody and discuss what we sell and be okay with that. And then what were some of the jobs you had prior to what you're doing now. I think you touched on it a little bit earlier in the podcast, yeah. but as you worked your yeah, way I, up. I came in, I was a, a, a program manager at the time we called it marketing manager uh, for here on the East coast with one of our uh, salespeople, the guy that anybody who knows RF knew Bernie Neal and Bernie had started with us in 1964. So wow. Bernie was with us for a very long time, ultimately retired after 54 years. 
but anyway, so I started working with Bernie, and then after a few months, I ended up taking over the entire Western region. At one point, I had the entire Western region plus Canada and Keysight globally as a program manager. Okay. And then after that, I transitioned into a regional sales manager for upstate New York and all of Canada. And then maybe a year or so after that, I took on New England. And so then I had New England, New York, and all of Canada as a regional sales manager managing multiple uh, rep firms. And then after that, I became the national program manager. So came back inside, ran the program team. Then I became director of sales and program management. Customer service at that point rolled up underneath me. And as I mentioned, back in January, I got uh, promoted to the, the global role. So now I just recently picked up the Europe and Asia side of things. How is it managing the, the European and the Asian side of it then? Are you just kind of getting acclimated to that? Um, have you had a yeah. chance to go over there yet and, and meet with them? I haven't yet. Yeah. And obviously with COVID, that's been a little bit of a challenge, but the Asia team has been great. We have a very established team that's there. It's been really me managing the manager, which isn't so bad. The European side, we're in the process of rebuilding that entire structure. So that one's a little bit more involved and I'm a little bit more involved in the detailed day-to-day stuff there right now. Um, And we're going to try to build that foundation and have a manager there that can then drive us and bring us to the next level. So that's been a little bit longer of a challenge, but it, but it really is interesting. And as I mentioned from the lessons learned, you asked way back when it really is going about it differently in each area and, and understanding kind of what that market requires and, and what's really how we should go to market in each area, because it's not going to be the same everywhere. And, and that's true even here in the States. If you're yeah. selling in the Midwest or you're selling in Silicon Valley, it's a little different approach. You're ultimately trying to get to the same end and you're using the same tools, but your approach to it is a little bit different. And I've just taken that and leveraged that same thing in both Europe and Asia. Is it just a relationship approach? To some degree, there's some of that. And the other degree, in some areas where you're already established and have that RF name recognition, you can leverage that. And in other areas, you're on the other end of the coin and you're trying to prove who you are and you're the newer guy on the block and you're right. really trying to flex your muscle and explain all the technologies that we can do and our engineering capabilities and all those things. So it really depends on a case by case basis, kind of which hat you wear. Sounds like you have a fun challenge, but a, a, a really great challenge ahead of you here in the next couple of years and in, in continuing to grow the Amphenol RF business. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about it and, and I'm really lucky. I mean, anyone that goes on those worldwide management meetings and all those things can see the success that RF has had. Yeah, so yeah. You know, the support here and the management has been really great in terms of direction and, and helping me not only with my career, but just overall. So it's it's been really a good experience and, and working with Greg and, and you mentioned Bill now, but even with Zach Fryer, yeah. you know, you're able to pick up a lot from the, from these guys. And it's been, you know, it's exciting, like you said, and it's it's fun, but it's sure it's a challenge. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's uh, it could be a little bit overwhelming if you let it. But if you take a step back and take a breath, yeah. it's just a different challenge. That's all. Sure. That's great. I'm sure you're going to do great things. So, and again, Thanks. congratulations on the promotion. So now if I take you out of work, right, uh, and you're not busy trying to sell globally and manage programs globally for Infinal RF, what do you like to do in your free time? Well, actually, uh, my primary hobby takes up a lot of my time. So I race cars. Uh, oh. I race okay. dirt track race cars. So um, I race primarily in upstate New York and we go around and, and race different cars. So, you know, when you're not racing the car, you're working on the car or looking at different technologies. We just changed out the whole rear geometry in the car to try something different. So, so I spend a lot of time doing, doing that, which is really nice because it totally takes you out of this world and it's a hands-on thing. You're, you're getting your hands dirty. And then certainly in the car itself, when you're racing it, your mind is, 
is on that exclusively. So it's, it's a nice escape. How did you get involved in that? Was that something from when you were a kid? Sort of. My grandfather raced years ago, so it was always something I liked, but I, yeah. he raced prior to me being born. So I went here and there as a kid, and then I got to be an adult, and my brother-in-law is very mechanically inclined, and we went to a race, and I was like, we could do that. <laughs> so we built this, we gutted an old Camaro, we built yeah. it up and went and raced it and started winning. And then we won the track championship and we oh. moved up and we moved up. And now we, we race full purpose built race cars and we, we steal them once in a while on those too. So uh, it kind of just happened. And it, again, I think it's that competitive yeah. spirit growing up. Is it, I don't know if lucrative is the right word, but does it help pay for itself if you do well enough? No. It's a labor uh, of love. It, <laughs> It's a, if you have the right sponsorship, it'll be okay. They, yeah. One of the old adages in racing is that you want to make a million dollars in racing, start with $2 million. So <laughs> it's one of those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, sure. Just because, especially these days, between the tires and the fuel and the towing and the maintenance and God forbid if you crash or whatever. So there's a lot involved with that. But if you have the right sponsorship, you can make a few bucks here or there. And every once in a while, if I have a good year, it, it's something that pops up on the on the tax return. But it's certainly... I. I think I'm going to stick with Ampanol for now. <laughs> okay. So you're not going to be leaving anytime soon to, to no. hit the Daytona 500 or something. So, but I, I don't think so, no. <laughs> so besides the challenge and the competitive aspect of it, what is it, and, and maybe that's the thing, but what is it that you really, you know, from a deep personal level, like about racing? It really, it's a couple things. One, it is the challenge up front. And especially now that we're at a level where we're racing against people that really do this for a living. Yeah. This is their focus. So to be able to pull in there, me and my brother-in-law with a flat trailer and my buddy actually who works out back here, push the car off, run out there and race with these guys that do it for a living. There's a certain amount of gratitude I get out of that. Yeah, right? it, sure. it really feels like you, you've accomplished something. And then secondarily, it's just the overall exhilaration of strapping into a race car, center steer, throttles on the right, brakes on the left. And for that, 30 minutes, 35 minutes, whatever the race takes, that's all that matters in the world. And yeah. you're just trying to get that guy in front of you. There's just something about that that is, like I said, exhilarating is probably the word. And it's probably a little bit more fun than driving in New York City traffic. Uh, a little bit more fun, but less violent. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Well put. Very good. All right. So if we then take you, uh, can't bring your car with you, um, probably don't have access to sports. But I put you on a deserted island by yourself, all right? And I say, Matt, you can bring three things with you. You can bring one album, one book, one movie. We'll start with an album. What album would you bring with you? Well, I think uh, if I'm alone on the island, i got to keep myself motivated and moving forward. So I'm going to bring Back in Black by ACDC. Oh, okay. Going right to something that rocks. Not gonna mess around. You got. You got to You got to If you're there by yourself, you got to have that energy to build the fire and do whatever else you got to do. I want to be fired up there. Okay, good choice. How about a book? Um, you know what? As far as books go, I'm a big biography guy. Okay. I, I I really like that. I get a lot out of that. I like reading biographies. Obviously, there's the sports content, but I, I really enjoy that. So it probably would be a biography of of a coach. And, you know, in my management style, I, I, I read a lot of coach biographies because I find it to be very similar in terms of being able to relate with people and motivate people. So right. I read a biography about Bill Parcells, even though I'm not a Giants fan necessarily, that I really liked. Um, so I probably would bring that with me to keep myself motivated. Okay. Big tuna. Yes, sir. Nice. Okay. And then finally, how about a movie? What movie would you bring with you? 
Well, I would say if you're on the island there, you got to have something that's going to kind of be an escape for you. So probably my, although Clint Eastwood's usually my guy, I think the movie I probably would bring would be Goodfellas, just because that's, <laughs> for one, whatever reason, I can watch that movie a hundred times and it doesn't get old. Usually I kind of get sick of it, but that one I can watch over and over. It's, yes, it's infinitely entertaining. That is for sure. Yes. I, I would agree with you. Yeah, and that's that's another one where, if you're flipping through the channels and you happen to fall on Goodfellas, it's like, well, I guess I'm, I guess I got to do this for the next hour and a half. I got to watch correct. this now. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All three great choices. So, Matt, thank you again for agreeing to do this. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, it was a good conversation. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having it. And I appreciate you doing it. It's really awesome. And uh, enjoy your work. So thanks for having me on.